a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, still stuck and homebound in the office, eyes glued to the uh, computer screen, waiting to see a verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It is, uh, what now, day three of deliberations, and... Uh, who knows what happens today? We'll have, uh, obviously, full coverage at Bearing Arms whenever the decision comes down. Uh, but on Cam and Company today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Michael Anestis, who is the executive director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center at Rutgers University. Yes, I know. <laughs> I got an email from uh, the Rutgers uh, Center for Gun Violence Prevention, I guess it was a couple weeks ago. Uh, and uh, Dr. Anestis has been doing some research on the surge in gun buyers uh, and suicidal ideation or thoughts of suicide among these new gun buyers. Uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I got, I'll tell you right up front, uh, we don't get into a huge screaming match. We don't get into a big debate. Uh, in fact, I was surprised by a couple of takeaways. And I just I'm going to highlight them so you can be listening for this as you uh, 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 you know take in the conversation with uh, Dr. Nestus and I. Um, the two big takeaways for me: first, even though we saw this you know record number of new gun sales uh, starting back in March of 2020, and we also saw you know we've had people claim that well you know violent crime increasing in the United States last year because all those guns were around. Here's another. I think a bit of evidence that contradicts that theory. Suicides, according to Dr. Anestis, went down last year. Yeah. So violent crime soaring, but suicides actually decreased. So if all of those guns out there were responsible for the rise in violent crime, why didn't also lead to a corresponding increase in suicide, particularly given the fact that Dr. Nestis found that there were more people than average uh, who were buying firearms for the first time who did say that they had had suicidal thoughts in the past. So that's one big takeaway. The other big takeaway is the fact that Dr. Nestis says when it comes to preventing suicide, he actually believes that peer-to-peer communication, gun owners talking to gun owners, voluntary things, uh, collaborative approaches among gun owners themselves are more effective at preventing suicide than legislation. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting takeaway. Now, look, obviously there are still lots of areas of disagreement between Dr. Nestis and myself, and I hope that he's going to come back on the program so that we can have a maybe a more lively debate uh, but honestly, you know, when it comes to saving lives, when it comes to suicide prevention, this is something that I know gun owners do care about. I know FFLs, I know fire instructors around the country who are working to improve mental health, uh, access to mental health, and to try to save lives. Uh, and that is an important conversation. I'll have that conversation with anybody, whether or not I agree with them uh, on Second Amendment issues or not. So while there are, I think, some areas of disagreement with Dr. Anestis and myself, and we'll probably get into those in future conversations, uh, today, we're actually trying to find some common ground when it comes to, again, preventing uh, the intentional loss of life and suicide, which is a tragedy that's affected so many of us, uh, including all of us here at Bearing Arms. You know, uh, uh, Bob Owens, who was the, I, I, there's no way that I could ever fill Bob's shoes. 
But, you know, Bob is no longer with us because he took his own life. And so this is a, a topic that can be maybe painful and uncomfortable for gun owners to talk about, but we can't be silent. So take a listen and a look at my conversation with Dr. Michael Anestis, the executive director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. Dr. Anestis, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's good to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you've recently released some research about um, what you're calling the surge gun buyers, right? Uh, I've been calling it the great gun run of 2020 and uh, 2021. The, you know, millions of firearms that uh, were sold and a lot of them to first time gun buyers. And I know that there's been, you know, there's no hard or fast data on how many of uh, these gun purchases uh, since, let's say, March of last year were, were first time gun buyers. But your data showed about a third of everybody who purchased a gun. What was the time period that you looked at specifically? I don't want to misrepresent your data here. Yeah, sure. So and so this is the second study we published on this. And this one, I think the one you're referring to, was looking at anybody who purchased between March of 2020 and June of 2021, but really March to March, because most of our data here was really collected January through March of 2021. So maybe there's a few people between March and June, but we're really looking at about 12 months from the beginning of that surge uh, to, to again, March, 2021. Okay. Uh, and you found what about 34% of, of those gun buyers were first time gun buyers. That sounds about right to me. It was actually a little bit lower than I expected. Cause I'd seen NSSF release some data saying they thought it was closer to half, but that was also a while ago. Right. So it's possible the dynamics have shifted since those numbers came out. Yeah. I think their estimate was like 40%. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, so it, it's fair to say I, that a, a good chunk uh, yeah. of those uh, gun buyers were, were first-time gun buyers. But specifically, you all were looking at, and look, last year was a very stressful year for a lot of folks, right? Um, and so there were a lot of stressors in our lives. But your research suggests that uh, it, was, it was pretty common for some of those new gun purchasers to have suicidal thoughts or, or have had suicidal thoughts in the past. And what's important about that is it's very different than what's typically the case. So firearm access is certainly associated with suicide death. That's a whole other conversation, but it's not associated with suicidal thoughts, right? So buying a firearm doesn't make someone suicidal. If you have a firearm owner and a non-firearm owner, I have no way of guessing which of these two is more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And that's, that's great, right? That's, that's good news. What we're finding, and again, we found this two times now, is that the folks who purchased during this great gun run are more likely to have had lifetime or past year or even past month suicidal thoughts than other firearm owners or non-firearm owners. And those two other groups don't tend to differ from each other at all. And in fact, if they do, the firearm owners tend to have less suicidal thoughts than the non-firearm owners. So it's really, this group standing out is just fundamentally different than other firearm owners or folks who've never owned a firearm. And it was particularly true for that crew of folks who bought their first firearm ever. So did you ask why they purchased a firearm? Was that one of the questions that you asked these folks? We did. And that's not, I don't think we had any of that in that particular paper because we were focused on just the, the suicidal idea. You know, sometimes the journal just really wants you to have one story you're telling. So we've asked that a couple of different ways. We, we always ask folks, even before this search started, hey, what's your primary reason? What are the different reasons? And like anyone else, the primary reason we always find overall is protection at or away from home, particularly, particularly at home, right? So I've, I've purchased this handgun. I want to keep myself and my family safe in my house. And that's why I own this firearm. And that's always been the case as the number one reason in ours. But we also asked about things that have been going on 
um, in the world during that time period? Did any of those influence your decision? And there's not one thing that stands out, but you see some differences. And so amongst those folks who bought for the first time, they were really saying they were buying in response to um, sort of vague, vaguely COVID-19, the pandemic stress, something about them made them decide, and they were still buying for home defense, but something about life in the pandemic made them say, I'm gonna buy a firearm. Maybe I wasn't going to before, but now I did. If you look at the other folks who bought during that surge, but they were just buying more firearms. They already owned before that. There wasn't necessarily anything different. For them, it was a combo of things. One was uh, supply chain concerns. And the other was a sense that it's almost sort of like societal breakdown. Look, I don't trust that law enforcement has this in check. And so I need to make sure that I am prepared to sort of keep you know, myself safe. Like this is, I really need to make sure I've got this, I'm, you know, sort of locked down, ready to go. So you've had two different groups and one of them seemed to be more general stress related. The, the, the world's on fire, but it isn't that there's a physical threat. It's that the world feels threatening and this feels like safety. And the other group says, look, A, the supply chain's a concern. So I got to buy now because I don't know when I can. And B, there's this actual sort of tangible physical threat that I'm trying to counteract by purchasing. So just very two different paths is what we were seeing. Yeah. Um, did you, and of course, you know, all of the people that you spoke to, um, thankfully, uh, regardless of any, you know, suicidal ideation that they might've had, they're, they're all obviously still here uh, yeah. for you to speak to them, which is, is you know, that's good. We, we like that. Um, but did that come up at all in terms of, you know, why you were buying a firearm? Did you actually have a lot of people say, because I was suicidal at the time? No, and we didn't. We didn't ask that. It's a tough. It's a tough way to ask, right? And what's tricky is, a lot of times folks aren't really good at thinking back and saying, "How did my emotions influence what I did?" We tend to be pretty accurate. So even if I asked that and folks answered, I don't know how accurate those answers are going to be. Some people might say that's why and it wasn't. Some people might say it's not and it was. So it's kind of hard to read those data. So I just kind of hold off from asking because it's hard to get it. Um, but like you said, it, the good news is, and, and even goes beyond that, it's not just that these folks are alive, the suicide rate in the country went down based on preliminary data last year. And that happens a lot when there's actually big chaotic events happening. So people sort of come together. You saw it after 9-11 too. It's not that we were happy. It's that there was this sort of unifying factor in the world that brought us together. So my message here isn't that we're doomed to a surge of firearm suicides. It's just that there are more firearm owners than usual buying firearms who have had suicidal thoughts. And I don't like that combo if they have not been well-versed in how to be safe and how to have a plan in place for in a tough moment, changing how they're storing things. Um, my concern is that some folks who are unprepared aren't typically the folks who are representing firearm owners. And so the dynamics are changing and we need to have some tools in place to help keep those folks safe should things get bad again, because those things kind of come in cycles. Yeah. And this is where I think you and I will probably find some areas of disagreement, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in terms of what we do here, because I know that uh, one of the things that, that you talked about were uh, storage laws and things of that nature. I'm of the opinion that, you know, any of these sort of mandates are of more use for prosecutors after the fact than they are in terms of actually preventing uh, a particular behavior beforehand. One of the things, though, that you did mention that that I think is is really intriguing um, is the the movement within the Second Amendment community itself to say, look, we're not in favor of new laws. We don't want to see you, you know, go to jail or get fined or uh, have a criminal record if you, uh, uh, you know, don't store your firearm the way the the state mandates that you do that. But 
Uh, if you are troubled or if somebody in your home is, is going through a crisis and you don't want to have guns around, hey, here's a list of locations. Here are our friendlies, so to speak, right? These are gun stores. These are FFLs that will allow you to temporarily store your firearm out of your home uh, until that crisis is over. And I, I, I first became aware of this in uh, Colorado. Um, and the, uh, the, the map that uh, research have actually put together. So it's, you know, it's very easy for gun owners to find those locations where they can do that. I'm curious, what do you think? And, and if you, you know, have a, uh, let's throw everything at the kitchen sink and see what works mentality, that's fine. But do you think that these storage laws and the, the mandates, putting new laws on the books are more effective than, you know, these sorts of grassroots volunteer uh, uh, cooperative approaches that we're seeing? No, I don't actually. Um, so, and where you where you might see some effectiveness from those storage laws in particular would be for child or adolescent suicide protection, right? So, the, the benefit there would be if if you parents tend to underestimate the access that their children have of firearms. So, that's where I see if there's value in those laws. That's where I see that mostly residing. If you look at my work, ninety nine point nine percent of my energy is in the volunteer space. It's about how to help firearm owners make decisions to map onto their own values about how to store their firearms, and particularly for how to have a plan in place for what to do if they themselves or someone else who could access that firearm is in a tough spot. So I absolutely think that this movement's best led from within the community of firearm owners, right? Like, so I put my voice out there a lot because I care about it. I'm passionate, but I'm not the guy who's going to be the voice of this or the face of this. I'm not going to convince folks. Because there's, it's such a politicized issue, right? People are going to come in assuming I have an agenda that I, I don't have. I, you know, my, I, I've spent the last decade living in South Mississippi, working in the military. I'm not mandating anybody in that population to do anything. And if I did, they aren't listening to me, right? So like, that's, that's not my game here. That's not my play. Um, the goal here is just to help folks, first of all, buy into the, what I think is indisputable. There is a risk that if you are suicidal and there's a firearm you can readily access, that's scary just because the case, the lethality rate of the firearms is fundamentally different than other methods. So in your tough moment, I just need you not to just be able to reach for this. I need there to be something that slows that down. Ideally, that's time and space, either because you've stored it very safely, you stored it outside of your home. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. I've heard about folks who have they have a lockbox and what they've done, they've drilled, it's a key operated lockbox. They've drilled a hole the size of the key. They drop theirs in, they give their key to their partner. I've heard folks about to say, I'm gonna have someone hold my firing pin for a little while. There's so many different ways. I've heard of a hunter who, when hunting season was over, um, took the key to his uh, uh, the safe that he kept his rifle in, put it in a bucket, filled that bucket with water and put it outside and it froze. So if he needed to get to it, he could, but he wasn't gonna get to it in a frantic depressed moment, right? So for me, it's about finding what are your values and just how can you make sure that you don't do something in your worst moment that you can't take back because 85 to 95% of the time folks use a firearm in a suicide attempt, they die less than 5% of all other attempts combined do, right? So the method matters. It's not that it's worse if someone dies to the firearm, of course not, right? It's just that I need to find a tool that gets someone to buy into. There is some risk here. And how can I still maintain my lifestyle, my autonomy and my values and beliefs, but keep myself, and my loved ones safe. That's it. So I totally agree with you. Collaboration, better led within the firearm community better. My job is to help provide the data out there to say, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. How can we find some solutions that work? Well, you know, it, it, it seems to me like one of the other areas here that, uh, that that we should talk about, I mean, you talk about, you know, in that moment of crisis, what, what can we do to, to generate a little time and space when you're in that moment? But I think too, one of the, the big conversations that we need to have is, 
surrounding mental health and, and the idea that, you know, look, if you're struggling, it's not a sign of weakness. Uh, it doesn't make you a sissy. Um, doesn't make you a bad person or, or, or weak to, to reach out for that help. Because I think that's a, a huge key as well, right? When you're having those, those moments, if, if, if you're struggling by yourself, if you're all alone, um, you know, with your thoughts, then no matter how much time or space you might have, uh, you know, you might still go down that dark place. But if I, I think there's a huge role to, to, uh, for, 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 for that communication about, uh, opening up, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and having those conversations when you're struggling to not be alone, to say it's okay. Um, how important is that in this discussion as well? Enormous. So I think the way to think about it is that these are two things that have to go hand in hand. So I'm a clinical, licensed clinical psychologist. My training and background is in psychotherapy and how to help people in anguish feel better, right? So I am 100% on board with that. And I think it's, it's two things. I need people you know, on a, on a global scale, I need sort of societal norms to change people to be comfortable talking about their feelings and seeking help. And I need people to have a path to do that. And I need them to be alive to do that. Right. So like you said, putting time and space in a moment doesn't make the agony go away. It gets you through that moment, but I need to get you through that moment. So when I, when I talk about the safe storage, it's not because I think, well, that's it. We're done. Nothing else to do. It's that I need to do that so that now you can pursue the biggest goal, which is to build that life worth living. It's to get you past this moment that made you want to use that firearm for a different reason you bought it for in the first place, right? I, I want you to feel happy and get you to the help that you need. So I think they work hand in hand. I, I often compare it to, think of me as the guy talking about wearing your seatbelt. That doesn't mean I don't care about drunk driving, right? Like I care about both of them. I'm talking about this one because it's at least on my side of the, the field in psychology, folks aren't talking about that enough. They get, they get too fixated in one thing. And the problem, here's the trick with it, is the demographic groups most likely to die by suicide using a firearm. So men in general, middle-aged, older adults, service members, veterans, law enforcement, all of these guys belong to groups that sort of culturally speaking, make, like you said, make it hard, makes it feel like a sissy, or there's going to be all sorts of consequences to talking about what you feel and seeking help. So they don't, they underreport their suicidal thoughts and they avoid mental health care. And so that's why so often the story is I never saw it coming to the loved ones. It's not because it came out of nowhere. They just didn't tell you. They were probably thinking about this for a long time. And so I definitely want to move those folks to be more comfortable seeking help. And I want to provide them the best help available. And in the meantime, I want to make their environment safer or have, have them make their environment safer, not me come in and do anything. Again, it isn't me mandating anything. It's helping folks create environment that until they can find the help they need, they at least are not so vulnerable to the worst possible outcome. That's interesting. Um, and again, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the program talking about this, because like I said, you and I uh, are, are probably not going to agree on, you know, the need for new legislation and things of that nature. But I think that we we certainly can agree. And I know plenty of other gun owners out there. In fact, there are, as we you know mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there are gun owners who are actually, I think, leading the way in, in terms of having these conversations. So this is something that the Second Amendment community, uh, I think, is aware of. Um, but, you know, you, you did mention that this has become politicized, you know, it, it, and it is the gun control movement that's out there pushing things like uh, uh, storage laws um, and red flag laws, which I also have some some big issues with. Do you think it would be better overall if the gun control lobby were to step away and to let the Second Amendment community step up? 
uh, and sort of lead on this issue rather than haranguing gun owners. Because, you know, like it or not, Michael, you're right. I mean, if, if uh, you know, Moms Demand Action or Giffords is out there uh, talking about the need for stores laws, even, even if their intentions are good, we see that as restrictions on our right to keep and bear arms. Yeah. So, I mean, my goal is always to save as many lives as possible, right? It isn't about advancing, you know, it's not about getting a win. And, and, and I don't, again, my, I come, I came to adopt a different community as my home and my family over the last decade than I ever probably anticipated growing up, right? So I, I come at this from a very different, I'm grateful for the time I had living outside the bubble I grew up in. Let's put it that way. And so I think it's made me think about things in a very different way. That I think is probably helpful for this. Um, I, I'm never inclined when people have an energy for a shared goal of mine, which is save lives, to tell people to back off. What I'm inclined to do is to tell people not to harangue anybody. If that, if someone's belief is to pursue this and they believe this is where the data goes to save lives, I, I, I'm never inclined to be like, no, you should drop out of this because I, I share the goal and I don't feel like I have all the answers. And so I'm not going to say one person drop out and throw everything over here, but I am saying, take the heat out of the conversation, man. Don't accuse people of things. If someone disagrees with you, don't assume it's because they don't care about safety. Don't assume it's because they don't you know, I, I think that there are assumptions made that that color this conversation in a way that's not necessary. And it only happens in certain circumstances, right? I've never had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a gun owner about safe storage and suicide where we were going to fight, where it felt like there was tension in the room. The agreement is so prominent on this issue. But when we go to the internet or when we zoom out or when we put our labels of who we are on, or it becomes some political who's going to have a victory thing, the whole thing falls apart, Right. Um, I'll often, when I give presentations on this in a crowd, I'll say, hey, I want you to think back the last time you had an argument with someone about firearm rights and uh, you convinced them or they convinced you. And everyone just chuckles because it never freaking happened, right? So uh, I want this conversation to be productive. Let's focus on on saving lives and not on battling each other and leaving each other. And, and I know that sounds idealistic and Pollyanna-ish, but what I'll say is I've, I've done this in a space that is a difficult dance. I don't expect easy, easy progress, but I think that if you have some respect for people, conversations can be productive. And I like productivity. Well, I've been accused of being an idealist and a Pollyanna myself. So, uh, you know, you're in good company and, and, you know, listen, um, I, I want to continue uh, our, our conversations here um, because I, I think that you all be, obviously are going to be conducting more research. What, what is the next study that you're looking at right now? What's the next uh, thing that uh, will probably be published uh, from the, uh, the Rutgers center? Gosh, you know, we're working on a million things. It's hard to predict and publishing makes me sad and how long it takes. So I don't know that I can predict that, but let me tell you about some of the stuff we're working on related to this that might not be published as quickly, but there are initiatives we're excited about. So the next one I'm, I'm interested in doing this sort of lines up with what you're talking about is getting some tools. So there's uh, an intervention called Lethal Means Counseling I did with the Mississippi National Guard. It's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation about, hey, should the situation arise? Have, do you have any thoughts about how you might store your firearm to keep yourself safe? And that's usually done with clinicians in like hospitals or healthcare settings, but that's not where I think it needs to go. So the next thing we want to be working on is actually training faith leaders across the state and how to have conversations where they feel they have enough knowledge about firearms to not sound like an idiot um, and, and can talk to folks. Because if, if firearm owners don't want to talk to mental health care, who might they talk to? Well, every town has faith leader and faith leaders are trusted folks who don't tend to be seen as having an agenda and who don't tend to accuse people and put, you know, put them in a box and say, I mean, some do, right. But um, it, it's, it's a trusted messenger. And so what I want to do is work with sort of empowering folks who are already trusted community members with tools 
alongside of their ability to then talk about mental health, right? If I can get them to have these conversations about both, then maybe those folks would be more effective at moving prevention forward without having to force folks to talk about their their mental health struggles. And again, I want them to, I'm with you. Like I would much rather people feel comfortable doing that in the meantime, what can I do to keep them safe? So that's the next thing I'm most excited about is can we get into the community and find folks? The other group I've tossed out is bartenders actually. So I think would be like, who do you, basically who do people talk to when they're feeling upset and they're comfortable and they let it spill? Sometimes they're priest, sometimes they're bartender, sometimes they're barber. You know, I, I want to talk to those folks. So that's that's an angle we're looking at as a thing we can do. Of can we get some tools out and be helpful that way? And then again, what you're doing is empowering that community itself to spread things more naturally and keep their conversations in a group where people feel trusted and don't feel like they're coming to Rutgers and coming into my research lab to do this kind of stuff. And quite frankly, that kind of thing's gone better than you think it would, but it isn't, it's not the answer, right? Like that's, that's, that's not to scale. That's not going to solve the problem. So so I guess that's where we're going next. All right. Well, listen, we're going to stay in touch. I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, as I said, we might always agree or might not always agree on uh, on the strategies, but I think we do agree that uh, saving lives is important. Keeping people alive uh, is vitally important and uh, making sure that folks have those resources they need uh, to be safe and strong and live a long, healthy, happy life. Uh, that, that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Nessus, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you so much for giving a voice to this. I appreciate it. All right. So I do appreciate that Dr. Ness's joining us. Hopefully I, I told him after we got in with the interview, I said, all right, next time you come back, we're talking shall issue concealed carry. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, have that uh, discussion here in the near future. Uh, all right. Want to turn our attention now to today's armed citizen story, our good deed of the day and our recidivist report. Let's start there. Story out of Minneapolis, which, you know, was the uh, the highlight of our, our uh, uh, coverage yesterday here on Buried Arms Camp. We're talking about that study that said, well, I don't know why crime went up, but boy, it sure went up a lot in Minneapolis. Yes, yeah, so KARE, Channel 11, noting that uh, felons who've been put on probation, despite new crimes, they, they've, they've, they've been able to stay on the streets, uh, have allegedly committed 16 homicides in the area, uh, just over the past year. This is amazing. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, 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 over the past year. First guy that they talk about, a guy named Devon Dwayne Glover, who back in 2017 uh, fired shots at a, a light rail stop in St. Paul. Uh, a bystander was wounded. And KARE says three years and additional convictions later Glover was on supervised release when he was once again accused of firing his gun. This time the victim of restaurant owner Kevin Tran. Uh, And uh, KRE says police and corrections department whistleblowers say that Glover's Glover's case is indicative of a growing trend in Minnesota. Convicted criminals on probation and parole allowed to remain on the streets even after serious violations of the release terms, which include committing new crimes. And as they say, the results can be devastating. They've documented at least 16 murders over the past two years. Excuse me, not the past 12 months, but the past two years. Allegedly committed by convicted criminals who were on probation or parole had already been charged with a serious crime, but were left on the street instead of being sent back to jail. So these were people who were convicted. They were given probation. They committed another crime. Their probation was not revoked. And then they went on to be accused of yet another crime. This one, a homicide. Yeah, an ombudsman report uh, from uh, the Department of Corrections last year 
shows that revocations were down 45%. This is part of a strategy to protect the health of inmates behind bars, so you keep scoff laws and offenders out on the street. Uh, this ombudsman report included several anonymous interviews with the Department of Corrections staff. Uh, most of them say, look, you know, we're okay with uh, reducing probation revocations if there's a technical offense. But the policy had, quote, swung too far. They say it's become hard to get a probation revocation hearing, uh, quote, even for new, more serious offenses such as assault or being in possession of the presence or in the presence of a firearm. And they said that community members and supervising agents will get hurt. And as KARE reports, they already are. Uh, Now, today's armed citizen story from Bossier City, Louisiana, where a gas station clerk forced to to defend their life against a would-be robber. This was uh, last Sunday, about 3 o'clock in the morning, at a uh, Circle K. Clerk at the gas station fatally shot that would-be armed robber. The man identified uh, as Dondre Dunn of Marshall, Texas. The uh, gas station clerk uh, has not been identified, is not facing charges. We might not ever know his name because uh, they were the, or, or she, they were the victim of a crime here. Uh, again, allegedly committed by uh, Dondre Dunn of Marshall, Texas, who uh, uh, was fatally shot by that gas station clerk in self-defense. And finally today, our good deed of the day, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, where a police officer in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help bring a new life into the world, is back on September the 30th, Robin Von Lum, the uh, first to arrive for an ambulance call at a roadway inn in Cumberland County, PA, uh, to assist a woman in labor. Came obvious that uh, Von Lum wasn't just going to have to help, but would actually have to take the lead uh, in delivering a healthy baby girl. Robin Von Lum used to be an EMT, but she had never delivered a baby until then. She did great. When the EMTs arrived, they took over the care and transportation, uh, took the uh, mom and baby to a local hospital for care. Von Lum said it was an amazing experience, and she is glad that she could help. Well, I'm I'm glad she was there to help too, because uh, delivering a baby all by yourself, uh, I cannot even imagine what that would have been like. So, in the right place at the right time, willing able to do the right thing, Officer Robin Von Lum, there in Cumberland County, PA. We thank you for your very good deed, and we thank you for tuning in to Bearing Arms Cam and Company. As always, hopefully on Monday, I'll be back in our studio, or at least have a blackout curtain so you don't see the uh, ray of sunshine slowly moving up my body here as we're doing the show. Uh, Anyway, I do appreciate uh, you taking part in the program as always. If you like what you see, don't forget you can go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. You will get a significant discount on your VIP membership. Uh, That gives you exclusive uh, analysis, news stories, information you're just not going to find anywhere else. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Your support as a VIP member allows us to do things like send Julio Rosas to Kenosha, Wisconsin to cover the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We'll be covering the 2022 SHOT Show from Las Vegas here in a couple of months uh, right here on BarryAndArms.com. In fact, your support allows us to do shows like this, Barry and Arms Game and Company, each and every day. So again... We really do appreciate your support for independent journalism, pro-Second Amendment journalism. We need more of it out there. We're not going to get it from the mainstream media, but you are are helping us do our part, and we thank you very much for that. We'll see you back here on Monday with another edition of Bearing Arms Cam & Company. We will, of course, be updating BearingArms.com all throughout the weekend, so make sure you check it out for the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. And until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free. 